Thanks for listening to Reimagining the Internet from the Institute for Digital Public Infrastructure at UMass Amherst. We're hosting an ongoing discussion with researchers, activists, academics, techies, and journalists about what's wrong with the Internet and how we might fix it. I'm your host, Ethan Zuckerman. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Reimagining the Internet. Uh, I'm Ethan Zuckerman uh, from the kitchen that I've been trapped in for the last eight months. Um, I have the wonderful opportunity to hang out today with my friend Tim Wong, who is uh, hiding behind a microphone in a closet somewhere <laughs> on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Uh, this is, as you might imagine, uh, yet another pandemic interview, uh, but it's one that I'm particularly thrilled by. I could fill a podcast simply by reading the projects that Tim has been involved with in the decade or so that I know I've known him. So it, instead, I'm just going to hit on some of my favorites. Um, Tim founded uh, a law firm called Robot Robot and Huang uh, until he got fired by his partners uh, because once they were automated to do the work, uh, they didn't need him anymore. Uh, he's one of the co-founders of RaffleCon, uh, Rolling on the Floor Laughing Con, which was a conference of internet celebrities, uh, which was really fun until we discovered that uh, Keyboard Cat has an agent, uh, which was so dispiriting that it's just kind of hard to laugh about these things anymore. Um, he was my editor at the remarkable uh, California Journal of Images and Mark Zuckerberg. That's, that's probably my favorite academic paper of the last few years that I've written uh, with his guidance. Um, but really, he is a, a writer, a very deep thinker about the internet and internet culture, a researcher. And right now, um, he is the author of, of a really remarkable and important new book called Subprime Attention Crisis. It's just out with Farrar, Strauss, and Giro. Uh, and, and Tim, um, we ask everybody the same question here. Um, and it's a pretty simple but, but um, massive two-part question. What, what's wrong with the internet, or, or maybe in this case, internet advertising? Um, and, and what should we do about it? Cool. Well, Ethan, thanks for having me on the show. Um, so in typical fashion, I think I'm going to attack the question, uh, and then I'll of go course. with the question, right? Absolutely. Um, I mean, I think the, the hard part about your question is, how do we characterize the internet? It's such a big kind of unknowable thing in some ways, and it's very difficult to characterize. And almost any way of characterizing it is inevitably going to leave out sort of the experiences of, of people, right? And yeah. And so, so I think with that proviso in mind, though, what is wrong with the internet? Um, and, and I think one thing that is wrong with the internet is that some of the biggest sort of companies uh, that have really shaped the modern experience of the web um, are, are built around kind of a financial engine of, of online advertising, specifically a kind of advertising known as programmatic advertising. Mm -hmm. And this kind of core financial engine um, has produced a lot of sort of bad impacts on the design of the web, um, but I think also um, may actually lead to a great deal of sort of instability um, as we think about, you know, how financially robust is this kind of structure that we've created uh, over the last 20 years and, and where is it going to go for the next 20 years? So let, let's talk about what distinguishes um, programmatic advertising from other types of advertising. So when I um, type into a search engine, um, I want to get my roof fixed in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. Um, that's a different sort of advertising than what you're talking about, right? 
Yes, uh, that's that's correct. Well, I should say at least like when you type in a term in a search engine, right, uh, and an ad is delivered to you, that is programmatic advertising. Um, okay. Now, I think the main distinction that people should know about, though, is when, you know, someone uses the word advertising, you usually think about, you know, mad men, right? These guys sitting in kind of smoke-filled offices, you know, saying offensive things to one another. And I do think that um, one of the things uh, that's often missed is that the modern day sort of structure of advertising is, is very different from this. Um, it's, it's a lot more, you know, sort of Wall Street uh, than it is kind of Madison Ave uh, in the sense that- A numbers you know, game rather than a creative game. Exactly, right. Um, it's sort of uh, extremely data-driven and it's largely facilitated through algorithms that compete with one another to deliver an ad to someone. And so when you go search for a term, right, uh, say carpenter on, on Google, Mm-hmm. Um, essentially, there's a split section, uh, a second auction that takes place to deliver an ad to you at that point in time. Um, and there's basically a, a kind of huge infrastructure that allows for these auctions to happen in between the time at which you click on a link and the time in which the website loads. Um, and, and these trades happen billions of times uh, every single day, every time an ad is delivered online. And so my local roofers are essentially participating in an auction and the prize is my attention. Yeah, the, the sort of right to load something in front of your eyeballs or at least attempt to. Okay. And and so what what's wrong with that? I wanted a roofer. Um, roofers are going to compete to pay for the right to put that ad in front of me. Um, you know, shouldn't under Western capitalism, doesn't that mean that the, the best roofer uh, buys my attention and that everyone's happy? Sure, right. Well, and, and actually, you know, the the, the kind of um, illusion you're making there uh, is, is a really good one, right? Which is that there has been a lot of kind of economic theory that has gone into designing these attention marketplaces. And a lot of it is, I think, like very much tied to kind of the sort of classic uh, economic thinking, right? Which is we create an extremely liquid market. Uh, people compete on price. Uh, and this should be a good way of kind of clearing this inventory. It's an efficient way of doing that. Um, now, there's a couple of problems here, though, right? Um, one of them is that it's unclear whether or not the ad at the other end um, actually works. Um, mm-hmm. And that, that, that's a kind of, you know, there's a lot in that statement. So let me unpack that a little bit, right? There's, there's sure. kind of the question of whether or not if you see an ad, uh, it is something that actually influences your behavior. There's not actually a whole lot of evidence to suggest that that might be the case. But also, in many cases, an ad is delivered to someone who's not even real, right? So the prevalence of uh, what's known as kind of like click fraud or ad fraud is huge in the economy. And so the ads may not even actually get to a real person. Um, and in some cases, Google did this great study a number of years back where they said about 60% of ads that are delivered are never even seen because they appear in your browser, but you know below the fold or they're somewhere kind of weirdly placed so no one actually, actually ever notices them. And so there's a lot of kind of sort of, I would say, interference between the purchase of an ad um, and its actual impact, right, that people want, which is that someone would buy their service or buy their product. So, but surely advertisers aren't idiots, right? So they're concerned about ad blockers that prevent um, users from seeing ads. Surely they know that that some of these ads um, never actually get delivered. Um, there have to be some effect to these or people would stop using them, correct? Or uh, is that too much of an assumption? Well, I think it is too much of an assumption. You know, it's actually really fun. My my book is sort of designed to be polemical, right? Um, and and part of the the sort of success metric, if you will, of the book uh, was to sort of piss off as many people as possible. Mm, and always um, always a worthy goal. 
always a worthy goal, right? And I've heard from a number of ad tech people who have said, well, lots of people spend money on this, so isn't it proof that it works, right? And, you know, the, the title of the book is Subprime Attention Crisis, and, and, you know, very explicitly, I'm trying to draw comparisons to other kinds of market bubbles that we've seen in the past. And one thing you learn looking at the history of market bubbles is that, you know, the fact that someone is spending a lot of money on something is not necessarily an indication that the market is actually functional, right? Um, right. And there I think was a quite a robust market for... Um, very low quality distressed mortgages and for mortgage-backed securities that turned out at the end of the day to be largely worthless. Totally, right. And I do think that there are a lot of perverse incentives in the ecosystem to keep this ball rolling, right? If you are an ad tech company, right, you're a Google or a Facebook or any of the large number of other companies that are in the ad tech space, um, you might very well want to really prove that this stuff or show that this stuff really works, right? And you have a lot of incentive to kind of tout the benefits of this, even if it doesn't, right? There's also extreme levels of sort of opacity, right? We've built this incredibly large infrastructure for buying and selling attention online. The problem is it's sometimes really difficult to understand why an ad is actually delivered to someone. Um, and then I think the final thing is actually there's also empirical problems, right? Which is most of the, uh, a lot of the academic literature uh, on this kind of topic of do online ads work uh, land at the conclusion, which is they might work, but the effect is so small that you have to run such a big experiment that in practical terms, no one ever does, right? And so I think there's lots and lots of layers that prevent you both from knowing whether or not ads work and a lot of incentives for people to kind of keep pushing the narrative that it in fact does work. And so I, I absolutely take your point about the incentive and I absolutely take the point that much of the work in this field is either sponsored by the ad tech companies or is only possible because of data coming from the ad tech companies. Um, certainly anecdotally, I have heard people on Facebook, for instance, talk about the fact that they flooded the market with Facebook ads and they get an uptick in sales. Is that not sort of an existence proof that advertising works, even if it doesn't work necessarily uh, as it says on the box, it, at least it does have some sort of an effect? Yeah, I think that's right. And uh, to be clear, I think the claim of the book isn't not ne isn't necessarily that advertising categorically is is ineffectual, right? Certainly we can point to examples in which it does. I think mm -hmm. the question is does that constitute is that the norm, right? Or is actually that that the the outlier that we're pointing to? And kind of we we sort of don't know because in many cases the ad tech companies have sort of refused to give you the data that you would need to try to make those types of assessments. Sure. And and for instance, if we're at a situation where 60% of ads that are sold are never actually seen um, on a user's browser. Um, and if we think about questions like click fraud, um, you might actually be dealing with a situation where an even smaller percentage are actually being delivered. Tim, talk about how click fraud works. Who, who is profiting um, when robots, I, I mean, I assume, you know, distant relatives of, of your former legal colleagues uh, <laughs> are out there uh, trying to make money by, uh, by clicking ads on the web? Yeah, so they're definitely in the same extended family, I think that's for sure. Um, so the way click fraud works is, is pretty straightforward and easy to understand, right? It's basically an advertiser goes to buy attention in this attention marketplace. Um, and that attention marketplace says, oh, here's, a, here's someone on an iPhone just about to open this app, right? Or, oh, here's someone on a laptop just about to look at this website. And basically, the sort of advertisers' algorithms are, are competing to buy uh, the right to show things to those, those devices. Now, what's interesting is in many cases, um, those devices may not actually be real. Um, and the way the kind of click fraud scam works is um, you, the, the sort of advertiser 
uh, purchases the ad pays the person, right? Pays the the kind of person that's providing access to this eyeball. Um, but it turns out that like that person is just inventing all of the attention that they say they have. Um, and so rather than being delivered to a real person, it's either delivered to um, either a robot, right? Or it's sometimes delivered to uh, someone who doesn't care, right? So you do have these incidents of these click farms where people actually just sit around clicking on ads. Um, they're not there to, 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 to be interested in the products. They're mostly there to drive up the, the click-through rate uh, so, so that they can pull the money from these advertisers. Ad fraud is a known problem in these programmatic ad markets, and there has been work to try to kind of deal with the problem. The kind of perverse thing that I think is working against those initiatives, though, is that in some ways, um, this fake attention actually makes these marketplaces look more valuable than they actually are. Right? Sure, these marketplaces. Totally, right. And they take a percentage, right? And so again, I think that there are, you know, th they have incentives to do sort of just enough that their advertisers don't pull out of the system, uh, but certainly not anything that would be structural to try to really resolve some of these issues. Um, I think the other piece that I'll just mention really quickly is I think that the, um, the sort of the bad guys, if you will, uh, are really nimble. Right, they're very clever at kind of getting around these things, and and in some cases, what they are actually doing is they're spoofing like the New York Times. Right, uh, they're actually pretending to be known publications, um, and and the fact that that's a persistent problem, they haven't been able to stamp that out. I think just shows like I think some of the problems with trying to resolve these issues. Interesting. So that they're they're pretending that the ad is showing up on the New York Times. Is that is that that's the that's correct, right? So the Guardian actually um, uh, actually I think filed a lawsuit against an ad tech company a few years back, in part because they discovered that people were selling ad inventory on the Guardian website that they didn't themselves even offer. Right? It was like video ads on the Guardian. Right? It's totally made up inventory, um, and those scams can net millions and millions of dollars. Um, and so. Yeah, I think that's 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 a big issue for sure. And, and of course, there's also ways in which programmatic advertising works that can be deeply unpredictable, even when it's not scammy. Um, could could you talk briefly about Sleeping Giants and sort of their their work on adding Breitbart? Overall, a lot of their work is connected to an issue that's known in the ad industry as uh, brand safety, right? And this is a good euphemism that people use uh, to refer to the fact that this kind of ecosystem is so automated and sprawling that sometimes you're a brand that has an ad that lends up next to the video of a white supremacist, right? Or something like mm -hmm. that. And, um, you know, I sort of use that as an example in subprime attention crisis to make the argument that this, this ecosystem is actually quite opaque because it can be very difficult to know why your ad ends up next to this type of content. Um, and, and actually efforts at controlling it, like the, 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 the kind of efforts of like the biggest brands in the world to try to prevent this from happening, um, hasn't been able to really stem the problem. And in fact, you have kind of activist groups like Sleeping Giants being able to kind of surface lots of examples in which effectively, right, like there's some really terrible stuff on the internet being underwritten essentially through this ad system, even without sort of the, the willingness of the advertiser, right? They sort of end up there, um, in, in a number of cases. I, I found myself, um, learning a little bit more about Sleeping Giants when I found out that um, ads for MIT distance learning courses were airing on Breitbart. Oh my God. And of course, I had to find the, the academic department at MIT and who was doing the ad buys and sort of help them understand that what they were buying was inventory that was running across many different sites, but that Breitbart was one of them. And of course, they hadn't consciously made that choice. One of the things that I love about this is, is the term brand safety. Um, I was involved with building some of the earliest web ad tech in you know, 1996 and 1997. Our problem was since we were hosting personal homepages and we weren't very good at controlling the contents of that, we would routinely have an advertiser like Ford Motor Company find their ad on a page filled with gay pornography and they mm -hmm. would cancel 
a contract with us. Right. Um, my boss gave me the job of figuring out how to stop that. And my solution, of course, was the pop-up ad uh-huh. so that the ad didn't actually end up on the same page as the gay porn because we were so bad at, at stomping out. Sure, yeah. So there's a lot of bad things that you can accomplish in the name of brand safety. Now, you're not worried about um, destroying the internet through pop-up ads. You're much more worried that um, this opaque and poorly understood market um, might be on the verge of collapse. Explain why that is and explain what the consequences of that collapse might look like. Sure. Um, So I would put it this way, right? So you have a market which is highly opaque. Um, You have a bunch of self-interested actors that are pushing the value of the marketplace. At the same time, you have a lot of dynamics that are trying to, that are actively eroding, I would say, the the sort of quote unquote actual value of the ad, right? That's the rise of ad blocking, ad fraud, Mm -hmm. like we've talked about. And also the fact that it just appears that, like, for a lot of big classes of online ads, people are just paying attention to them less and less, right? Okay. And in my mind, that is sort of the ingredients that add up to a market bubble, right? Which is you can't see what's going on. People keep telling you that it's great, but actually, in fact, it's not great. Right. And when sort of, uh, you know, sort of the perceptions of a market snap to reality, um, the sort of resulting panic can be can be effectively what a market bubble is. Right. That's that's kind of how the 2008 crisis occurred. Um, And so the kind of claim here is like, okay, so what is the trigger that causes a panic whereby advertisers say, wait a minute, what are we spending millions and millions of dollars on? Um, And you're already starting to see these kinds of strange, like, well, head scratcher moments, right? Uh, So Procter & Gamble two years ago said, we're going to stop $200 million of digital ad spending. The end result to their bottom line was zero. Nothing happened, right? And, And I do think that those types of events, right, can kind of trigger a a looming sense that maybe this market is maybe not as great as um, we think it is. Um, and, and, you know, one of the things that I'm sort of thinking about is like, does that set up the, the, the kind of grounds for a crisis? And what would a crisis like this look like? Well, I think part of it is uh, obviously the kind of companies that are facilitating this ad buying and exchanging uh, would, would lose a lot of money, right? But of course, I'm not so concerned that Mark Zuckerberg has like a billion less dollars. That doesn't really matter to me. What I'm worried more about is that there's a whole ecosystem of media creators uh, and communities online and, you know, social media platforms, right? Platforms that kind of facilitate all of this communication in the public sphere that are dependent on this financial reactor, this engine, right, to keep going and stay solvent. And so I do think that a sustained downturn in some of these programmatic ad markets, um, you know, really has a big human consequence. Uh, and, and I think, again, you can look at the sort of COVID-related downturn in the media as kind of a, a sort of, you know, hint at what might be, right? Because it's clear that a lot of major media entities don't really have the wherewithal to stand through, you know, a, a month or two of downturn. Um, and so I do think that, like, the, the, the cost there and the harm there is what I'm most worried about. So if we imagine other companies looking at what Procter & Gamble did with that experiment and essentially saying, well, what if we cut a significant amount of our online spending, our online brand spending, um, your feeling is that it, it might have a net zero result on the bottom line of those advertisers, that what it might end up doing is um, triggering a very serious shift for a company like a Facebook or a Google, uh, but that the most vulnerable actors in the ecosystem might be something like the Atlantic or Slate or you know someone who's doing high quality journalism and is highly dependent on advertising 
as as part of the revenue. Is that is that the ripple effect that you're most? Yeah, I, that is the ripple effect, and and in part it's because uh, programmatic advertising as a model has become something that we that there's an active effort to extend it into all different parts of the economy, right? So, for example, there's an effort right now to make podcast advertising based on the programmatic model. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I do think that like the the kind of you know the 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 implementation of this business business model in lots of different places means that the ripple effects also could impact lots of people that we don't expect. What's the solution? It, it's if we are dealing with uh, a subprime attention crisis in the banking crisis, um, a number of regulatory changes were made. Uh, Elizabeth Warren um, spun up uh, a, a evidently quite effective uh, consumer fraud protection agency. Um, banks were subject to stress tests, and uh, it's a whole lot harder to get a loan yeah. than it used to be. W- what are the things that that we could do um, to respond to the subprime attention crisis? Sure. So I do think that there is a need maybe on uh, really two places. Um, the first one is that I do think that the sort of power of the federal government becomes very useful here in sort of compelling transparency from, you know, largely kind of the ad, the ad tech duopoly, right? Your Facebook and Googles of the world. Um, and, you know, the, the thing I'm responding to there was, you may remember a few years back, uh, Facebook was really encouraging what was known as sort of the pivot to video, right? Mm-hmm. That, um, you know, our data suggests that everybody is watching Facebook video. There's more and more people that are going to be looking at this, and we're going to kind of tweak our newsfeed to really promote video. So fire all your journalists and hire a bunch of video producers, right? And later it turned out, right, and in future litigation, there's been claims that basically that they inflated those numbers on the order of 60 to 80 percent. Right. Mm-hmm. And the, the problem is that the advertisers don't have any leverage to get sort of third party auditors to go in and be like, are the numbers that you're telling me about this ecosystem actually real or not? Right. right. And right. I do think that there's room there for saying, OK, what is the level of transparency we want out of these markets? Um, and, and, you know, do we have to compel that disclosure? So I think right. that's the first one. Uh, a second one that I have kind of a, a vision of that the government might be involved in is, uh, again, to take a very, very wonky, uh, uh, you know, analogy. But in the capital markets, there's something that's known as the Security Act of 1933. Um, okay. And essentially what the Securities Act says is if you're going to offer, um, you know, stocks on the marketplace, we require you to give us certain types of information about mm. that, that product. And if it turns out to be wrong later, you can be liable for it. Yeah. Right. And I do think that those types of incentives might be really powerful in a market like ads, right, where there's just so much noise and there's basically no consequences for introducing bad data into the system. Uh, And so, again, the idea is not necessarily try to figure out what ads are good or what ads will be effective, but in the very least for people to know what they're getting themselves into uh, when they do buy an ad in these marketplaces. Now, I think the worry here is that the market, if you implemented these transparency measures, might be much smaller than it is right now. But I think it's all, it would also be a lot more stable, right, in some ways. It wouldn't have all of the, the sort of junk like ad fraud that's really inflating the scale of the, the market. You mentioned early on in this interview that you were hoping to piss off as many people as possible. Um, how's that going? Uh, it's good. Uh, people are annoyed. Um, and what's interesting is I would say that they're, they're annoyed on both sides of the debate, which is maybe an intriguing thing. And maybe uh, it's a little orthogonal to what you're asking about. But like, you know, on one hand, you have ad tech people who are like, this guy's an idiot. He knows nothing. Uh, I was joking with someone earlier today. It's almost like debating with someone in the national security establishment because they're like, oh, we know ads work, but we can't tell you anything right. that would prove if that. If you only case. could see what we see. Exactly. You, you would agree with us. Yeah. Right. And that's like a totally a bit of rhetoric that um, that I have seen. 
What's also really interesting is a response to the book, I would say even tech critics have not been happy with the book. Um, and they've been not happy with the book in some ways because it subverts the narrative that, you know, this advertising infrastructure is a kind of like mind control, right? Right. Sure. That it has the ability to sort of shape society in a very like sort of discreet manner. Um, and so, so I guess everybody's sort of been, been pissed off, right. Um, for what it's worth. Let, let's explore that for half a second. Cause we, yeah. we haven't talked about privacy. We sure. haven't talked about surveillance capitalism. Shoshana sure. Zuboff's name hasn't come up yet. Um, do you think that advertising as it works right now, do you think that these large marketplaces for personally identifiable information, for behavioral data, for psychographic data, do you see a social harm associated with it? Or do you just think they don't work? Uh, I do think there's there is a social harm. I just think our critique needs to rest on something more than uh, Mark Zuckerberg has the mind control ray, uh, right? Because I just don't think that's supported by the facts. But certainly, you can still resist uh, a, a huge surveillance infrastructure that we've built, right, on privacy grounds. Um, I, I yeah, I, I just don't think like the, the account of us having to believe the sort of industry's claims about this uh, isn't necessary for us to kind of like resist the sort of business model of the web. So, so let's hope that this, of, of course, hugely listened to podcast um, <laughs> changes the minds of all advertisers out there. They pull enormous amounts from programmatic advertising, um, ripple effects rack the industry, uh, a new Biden administration and of course, uh, regulates transparency in the market. Um, Google, Facebook and others shrink dramatically in their market power. How do we create and deliver content on the web? How do the Atlantics and, you know, any number of, of small creative publications remain solvent? Once you've blown up the financial model of the web, Tim, how, how are you going to fix it? Yeah, so I think this is obviously the huge question and the hard question. Um, and I do think that, let me frame it up and then I'll make an attempt at answering it, right? Please. I do think that... You know, part of the ethical problem with programmatic advertising is that it really is like uh, corporate jet fuel, right? Like it's very difficult to find a similar model that just creates so massive of a return in such a short period of time. Of course, one of the reasons why it's been so popular is, is for that reason. Now, the problem, though, is if you believe that a big chunk of that is fraud, right, um, you know, what What are we going to do? Like, what's the Indiana Jones thing where we, you know, switch one thing for the other, right? Like, wow, the, the problem is we don't have a whole lot of other models that could guarantee that scale of growth at that, at that speed, right? And so in some ways, probably implicitly what you're saying is, okay, to change the business model of the web is also to shrink the size of the pie, right? And, and then it becomes a really a, a big ethical question, which is, okay, what level of shrinkage of that pie are we comfortable with? Um, and, and, you know, are we willing to do that even in a world where we say, okay, there's, there's a number of well-meaning or, or well-deserving journalists that are funded by this ecosystem who will be out of work if you, if you do this, right? And I think it's, it's, it's hard, and this is one of the reasons, and this is my attempt to kind of answer the question, is there's two things. One of them is I really believe in kind of what I call sort of like a controlled demolition of this model, mm -hmm. right? Like that we, there's some people who are my friends who will say, who cares? Let's just blow this whole thing up. But I think the human cost is too great to really kind of blow up the, the bubble in this way. And so what you want to instead do is find ways of sort of stepping it down over time and allowing sort of alternative models to, to grow and form, right? I think the other one is that I think our model of the internet in the future has to still include ads, right? Because I do think the model does have its benefits, right? Like uh, accessibility to services, right? That's an indisputable benefit. 
Um, and so I do think that like really kind of what I most hope for is kind of an internet that's not just built on a monoculture, but instead has more of a diverse ecosystem of different business models, right? And I, and I do really think that the final point here is I do really think that advertising in its dominance has kind of smothered out this experimentation that we desperately need. Tim, thank you so much both for being with us and, and for uh, putting forward a book that, that really is challenging uh, how we think about this space. I'm really thrilled that it's out there and I'm always thrilled by uh, the incredibly diverse and, and powerful work that you end up doing. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. Reimagining the Internet is hosted by me, Ethan Zuckerman, and produced by Mike Sugarman, who also composed our theme song, Visit publicinfrastructure.org for more information about the launch of our research center at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst in spring 2021. And please subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast.